first you told us only through you could we know God and if we dared to question he wouldn't spare the rod for you we worked the soil for you we dug the moors for you we shed our blood and fought so many pointless wars now you try to tell us there's nothing we can do you say the world around us belongs fairly to the few but about six billion people no doubt will agree this world is our home not your property it's the commons our right of birth and you who would enclose the land all around the earth our future is your downfall when we cut this ball and chain you who'd sacrifice the public good for your private gain with our sweat we built the railroads built cities on these shores but because you own the money you see that it's all yours we laid the phone lines and the pipelines and then right before our eyes you see these things are taxes paid for you now will privatize privatize the hospitals privatize the schools privatize the prisons for all those who break your rules and preparing for the day when all the wells run dry you say you own the very rain that falls down from the sky but it's the commons our right of birth and you who'd own the water all around the earth our future is your downfall when cut this ball and chain you who'd sacrifice the public good for your private gain you claim to own the harvest with your terminator seeds you claim to own the genomes of every animal that breeds you claim to own our culture and the music that we play and with each song that we download to your coffers we must pay you'd even own my name and you'd say it's for the best maybe you'll let us on your radio if our songs can pass your test you own country you own western you say you've given us a choice you may own the airwaves, but you'll never own my voice. It's the commons, our right of birth, and you who'd own the music. The opinions expressed on corporations and democracy are those of our guests and the hosts, and not necessarily of the management of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. Good afternoon and welcome to Corporations and Democracy for August 12th, 2021. This is the program that examines how corporations dominate our democracy and what citizens are doing to replace corporate dominance with true democracy. I'm Steve Scalmanini with co-host Annie Esposito. Today's program will address two current events, both of which our guest has written about in recent days. The first topic will be the (coughs) bizarre prosecution of attorney Stephen Donziger by private attorneys at the direction of a federal judge on behalf of the Chevron Corporation. And that will lead us to a broader issue of the new report on climate change just published over the weekend by the IPCC, opposition to which is led by fossil fuel companies like the Chevron Corporation. So our guest is journalist Jessica Corbett, a staff writer for the independent news and opinion uh, website Common Dreams, where her work uh, primarily focuses on the intersection of politics, public health, and the environment. Her work at Common Dreams has been republished by Alternate, Echo Watch, LA Progressive, Salon, Truthout, Yes Magazine, and other outlets. And her previous writing has been published by The Nation in these times, The Ithaca Voice, and London's Peace News. Jessica graduated magna cum laude from Ithaca College, where she earned her B.A. in Journalism and Politics with an International Studies concentration. She hails from the Chicago suburbs originally, but now lives in Portland, Maine. 
So let's have a look at this bizarre prosecution of attorney Stephen Donziger on behalf of the Chevron Corporation and then the new IPCC report on climate change. Jessica Corbett, welcome to Corporations and Democracy. Hi, thank you for having me and thank you for bringing attention to these two vitally important topics. Yeah, we're so happy to have you here. The uh, human rights attorney Stephen Donziger, he, he won a case against Texaco, which is now Chevron, in 2011 on behalf of 30,000 Ecuadorian farmers for the environmental devastation caused by reckless oil drilling. And it's a big case. Ecuadorian courts awarded Don Ziger's clients nine and a half, no, more than that, 18 billion, how many million in damages. And so, meanwhile, he's been under house arrest for two years, is facing six months in jail. I mean, goodness, how can that happen to you for suing on behalf of the indigenous people of the Amazon? So, thank you for looking into this. Uh, what is uh, some of the the key details of this case, Jessica. Yeah, so uh, Don Zucker went down to the Ecuadorian Amazon in the early 1990s with a team of lawyers and scientists who were looking into Texaco's pollution of the area um, with oil extraction. And after decades of figuring out jurisdiction issues, they ended up winning the case in 2011 in Ecuador um, it, on several appeals. It was ultimately reduced from the 18 to 9.5 billion. But the tens of thousands of indigenous people affected in this community haven't actually seen any of that money because Chevron, which acquired Texaco, has been fighting it and. After forcing the case down to Ecuadorian courts, Chevron decided in 2011, after that initial judgment against them, to go after the attorney, Don Ziger, in New York. So his house arrest for over two years now stems from the, um, you know, years-long attempt by Chevron to what he and many human rights advocates view as retaliation for winning such a powerful case against the company. There's a lot of really questionable stuff that's been going on in the the justice system around this case. Um, quite a list of, of things that are, are worrisome. Uh, uh, well, we could start with, uh, you, well, you were mentioning how the case sort of bounced from Ecuador uh, to New York, and there, there's competing jurisdictions there. Uh, that's one way I, Chevron would get out of it, by moving its assets out of Ecuador. So um, how did that play out? They were able to move their assets out of Ecuador so that the indigenous people couldn't get the damages that they were awarded? Yeah, so in an attempt to uh, so in, in an attempt to make Chevron actually pay this money, um, the indigenous people have sought to use assets in other court systems around the world. Um, I believe there were cases in Argentina um, and Canada and Brazil. Uh, but so far they have not been successful in that. And um, in New York, where Chevron claimed fraud, 
uh, against John Ziegler, among other allegations that the attorney has repeatedly denied. Um, the judge has tried to block the, uh, any kind of efforts by Don Ziegler to actually acquire this money for the tens of thousands of people whose communities have been diluted and who have suffered a wide array of dramatic health impacts as a result of the oil pollution. So, you know, basically they're, uh, Chevron has just used the U.S. court system after not being satisfied with the results in the Ecuadorian court system to block any kind of accountability. That's amazing. They were able to argue, I gather, that the Chevron entities in other countries aren't the same Chevron entity that we all know and love. But, uh, that you know, that's just one of the ridiculous things. Um, I know Greg Pallast was following this many years ago in Great Britain, and he says that Chevron destroyed files in the case. So this would be another strange happening as far as justice goes. Did you hear? Yeah, there have been all kinds of questionable actions, including one of um, the, the star witnesses for Chevron later admitting uh, that he lied during his testimony um, in the New York proceedings. Um, and he had been like a key person claiming that the judgment against Chevron was ghostwritten and the result of a bribe. So the, the amount of questionable behavior on many fronts is, is so that, just, is out of control and and that's i think why people around the world from nobel laureates to members of congress have been outraged by this case and the fact that um you know he's locked up for what are actually relatively small charges uh, he's been in house arrest like four times longer than he would even serve in potentially serve um, behind bars for the charges that he's been found guilty of. Mm -hmm. So let me, let me clear up a point from a minute ago. Then, the um, the award was uh, was appealed, but eventually was nine and a half billion in the 2011 time frame, or was it just after after then when it was uh, went to appeal? You... Um, I know that the the Supreme Court in Ecuador is, I believe, where the nine point. Um, the 9.5 billion. Was okay, so that that's uh, the that, final that's, figure. Those were proceedings in Ecuador, and then so then the case was, uh, uh, or a new case was brought for uh, fraud and the RICO statutes, whatever it was. Uh, must have been a few mm -hmm. years after that, 2014 or 15, and that's when the star witness said that everything occurred down in uh, in Ecuador was a bunch of a bunch of bull, um, and he was he was uh, paid to ghostwrite the case. And so, so in New York, the, uh, the the case was overturned. And then, at a later date, this star witness recants and says, "Oh, he was paid by Exxon to, you know, Chevron, to, Chevron to, to, to lie about the thing." <laughs> but the case, but yeah, but the apparently, so the judge in New York let the overturning uh, remain in effect after this obvious fraud and this recanting of the. Uh, uh, you know, of the star witness. Yeah, and um, at this point, a lot of the focus has been on Don Ziegler's case, and uh, obviously, you know, it, it's important to 
to acknowledge uh, what many have called judicial abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a lot of interviews, Donziger has emphasized, you know, yeah, pay attention to my case, but don't forget about these tens of millions of people in Ecuador who are still affected by these uh, by decades of pollution. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's been so good about that. He's been under house arrest with an ankle bracelet, you know, with his children mm-hmm. and, his, and taking a shower and the whole time. But he realizes the real suffering is back in the Amazon. And um, I would like to talk a little bit about what the extent of that damage was. It's horrendous. But um, you, you did talk about um, this fraud, this RICO prosecution, which is really strange. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because he actually got debarred in New York State over this fraud that the person who said had, it had happened then recanted. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that whole thing with being disbarred is about? Yeah, so in reaction to the 2014 ruling in New York, which stemmed from the RICO case that Chevron filed against him, um, John Ziger was disbarred. I believe that was in 2018, and then it was upheld um, in 2020 by an appeals court. And... um, you know, it basically just bought into all of the allegations from Chevron that he engaged in all kinds of um, mal- legal malpractice from wire fraud to extortion to bribery. They have all kinds of allegations they've repeatedly thrown at him, all of which he and his legal team have vehemently denied the whole time. So in addition to um, this punishment that doesn't fit the crime, uh, more judicial abuse here. One of the most egregious things that just happened is the appointment of private prosecutors to continue the case against Donziger. What, what does that even mean, private prosecutors? Yeah, so this is a key focus of the article that I wrote. We've done a lot of coverage of his case, but my most recent reporting was about this use of private prosecutors in the U.S. court system. So the judge who um, was initially involved in this New York case, uh, who was behind the 2014 ruling, Lewis Kaplan, he filed contempt of court charges against Donziger um, for a variety of things, including a refusal to turn over his electronic devices containing privileged client information to Chevron. Um, and when Don Ziger said, no, I'm not doing that, um, and the Southern District of New York declined to pursue these charges, Kaplan not only appointed a private law firm, which was later revealed to have represented Chevron just a year earlier, to pursue the charges against Don Ziger, but he also handpicked the judge who presided over the case. And she notably has ties to the Federalist Society, a right-wing legal group that is funded in part by Chevron. So he's facing judges that are compromised regarding Chevron and the prosecutors that are... (laughs) I said it was bizarre, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. Every detail that I've, you know, come across in this case... 
um, throughout the reporting has just blown my mind, honestly. It's hard to believe. Now, um, I read two different versions of the uh, what of, of a disbarment, uh, and I, I read also a version that was that his license has been suspended in the state of New York to practice law. So, do you know which one it is really, or uh, is that still a bit uh, obscure? I believe there was um, it was perhaps initially a suspension, and I know in February twenty twenty a independent judicial referee recommended that he be reinstated. Um, the last update that I am aware of is the appellate court saying uh, last August, um, you know, no, we're not going to reinstate his right to practice law, at which point he was disbarred. Um, and as far as I know, there hasn't been a change in that status since. Okay. So even if he is cleared of these um, charges or... Uh, is uh, forced to serve a small time behind bars and and or pay a fine, he is potentially blocked from practicing his profession. Yeah, potentially. Afterwards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, on on that same topic or, or following that same logic, what is the status of the judge in the case? Um... For judicial misconduct, are they are they appointed for life, or is this a federal judge that has no, you know, what does does, does the anybody have recourse against uh, him and the judge he's appointed, which has these ties to the Federalist Society? It's funded by uh, partially funded by Chevron. So these are both federal judges, um, Kaplan and Preska, but um, given all of the concern about this case, we do have multiple members of Congress, uh, six Democrats, sent a letter earlier this year asking U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland to conduct a full review of this case. Um, so at this point, there is some, but I wouldn't necessarily say widespread, um, action on, on Washington, in Washington, to try and get to the bottom of this and and also, um, you know, to the two senators who recently sent a letter uh, to a judicial agency asking questions about this practice more broadly. And it's, that was what my most recent report focused on was a Senator Markey and Senator Whitehouse really asking questions not only about Don Thicker's case, but the use of private prosecutors and the selection of judges who oversee these kinds of cases and what kind of ethical policies are in place to prevent such um, cases of judicial abuse as so many human rights advocates have described Don Tigger's case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that the progressive Democrats are, are questioning this uh, private prosecution move here. That's just kind of scary for, for everybody. You, you said a magic word a few minutes ago. You, you used the term an independent uh, review uh, of the mm -hmm. uh, the disbarment uh, recommended that that be reversed. And and so what we have, I mean, the two sides are so clearly drawn. The independent review it comes to one conclusion um, which seems to be on Donziger's side in more than one case and then the uh, the ones with the, the, the decisions with 
you know, bias or you know relations to Chevron and all are on the other side. Well, how much how much more obvious can it be? And I know that some of the questions are being asked of the federal court system: how these people, you know, why they uh, didn't recuse themselves and have someone do it who was more well was independent. And mm-hmm. I don't think that's answered yet. I believe that's a pending question that, that hasn't been answered yet. Yeah, uh, a lot of the questions that Marky and White House asked, um, frankly, I'm, I don't know the answer to, and I don't know that they're public information. And so I think getting those questions answered is really the first step to looking at this practice more broadly, because while this is a very concerning case. So the practice, him, are, mm-hmm. go ahead. Yeah, yeah. While, it, while it's a very concerning case for Domziger and for all of the people affected by this legal action, it's also a, a scary practice in general, and, and Domziger's case could be a model for powerful corporations, whether they're fossil fuel companies or other entities, um, to try and go after human rights attorneys who are seeking corporate accountability and damages for poor people all over the world. Mm -hmm. So I think what we see here is, you know, potentially precedent setting and has a lot of broad implications for uh, legal action and the integrity of the U.S. court system. Yeah, yeah so, he is getting a lot of support. I know so even Amnesty International has jumped into this and going, uh-uh, no, this is just not okay, this uh, whole situation of the private prosecutors. That's actually a court appointing Chevron's legal representation to bring prosecutorial charges against this human rights yeah. lawyer on behalf of the state on behalf of the government yeah. and and being then mm-hmm. therefore paid by the government to do it and um and i believe that um i don't think that anyone has been identified yet who remembers when this has been done before i mean it was it, it was generations ago if not you know over a century ago just nobody knows uh, have you heard anything new about that haven't, and I know that um, in just in terms of the frequency, that was one of the key questions that the senator's letter asked, not only um, how often is this type of thing done, but also are there discrepancies between the outcomes of cases where there are private entities acting on behalf of the state versus when there are actual public mm-hmm. prosecutors. Uh, so I think once we, we have those answers, and frankly, even if the answers are, oh, you know, it's not really been used, well, well, I guess, you know, this case shows us why perhaps we shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, yeah th- this may go back to, you know, uh, prior to U.S. law, for all I know. I mean, it may go back to English law or something. But um, anyway, let me take a moment to uh, tell listeners that we're dis- uh, discussing issues today with Jessica Corbett. She's a staff writer for Common Dreams, uh, the website. And uh, we're discussing for the moment the the bizarre prosecution of uh, Stephen Donziger, a human rights attorney who had obtained a very large um, uh, settlement. I shouldn't call it a settlement, but anyway, a case of uh, about $9.5 billion uh, against uh, Chevron for damage done, environmental damage, in the, in the um, uh, Amazon region in the country of Ecuador. And as a result of that, he has been, uh, he's now still being harassed by 
uh, by Chevron through the U.S. system and a few uh, federal judges who have ties to Chevron. And if you have any questions about this or would like to comment, the uh, number here is 895-2448. Again, we're in area code 707-895-2448. I was really happy to see that um, hundreds of law students from uh, law schools around the country are doing a recruiting boycott against Seward and Kissel, and that's the law firm from where cometh these private prosecutors, I believe. Yes, that's the firm. And there are also protests that have happened, um, especially um, I saw one that actually was in uh, Richmond, California, um, the Chevron facility that days later uh, had some kind of fire. Um, oh, yes, and there's also been events in New York uh, where Don figures currently under house arrest. That's right. Our very own uh, Bay Area Richmond refinery, they, a couple of days ago, they let loose with a blast of sulfur dioxide into the air. Um, It was, I guess it was a a relief valve that let it loose, but they haven't got down to the core problem that caused it. But uh, apparently it was visible from Marin to Contra Costa all over the area, and it was a sort of this alarming black billow that went up. And I think the residents of Richmond get treated to these sort of adventures you know, a couple times, you know, every couple of years at least. Well, it's, yeah, It's part of the process. They, they do it to vent uh, gases. Uh, you know, when when needed. Yeah, but this was, there was some underlying problem that mm-hmm. forced them to to release that. Uh, we did touch a little bit about on the most important part of this at all, which is the the damage by the the drilling in in Ecuador. Do you want to talk a little bit about what's behind this whole big Chevron mess here that that uh, this human rights attorney is is trying to stick up for? Yeah, so a lot of human rights advocates have called it the Amazon Chernobyl, and I've heard Don Ziger call it an apocalyptic nightmare. Um, Essentially, Texaco discovered oil in the Ecuadorian Amazon rainforest in the 1960s, and it's an area with various indigenous groups. And over the next few decades, they dumped billions of gallons of wastewater into rivers and streams and abandoned hundreds of unlined toxic waste pits, which polluted the land, food, and local drinking water with carcinogens, um, not only affecting the environment, but also dramatically impacting the health of all of the region's residents. So it was on behalf of these indigenous groups and farmers that um, Donziger sued Chevron, which uh, had bought Texaco, and um, the the oil company claims that it had sufficiently cleaned up the area and any of the lasting damage is the responsibility of the National Oil Company of Ecuador. Mm -hmm. So it just seems that Chevron is is going to forever refuse (laughs) to take any responsibility for the pollution by the company that it acquired. Yeah, all these all these oil pits, you know, pools and such, I mean, they're, they're still there. So 
that you know the fundamental problem which brought this on you know a few decades ago i mean that's not being addressed yes and there's children that have died from it it's it's just the saddest thing in the world and and even sadder to see when there's a supposedly a cure for the crime to see what happens to the people that try to pursue that Okay. Again, eight nine five two four four eight. If anybody wants wants to get in on that discussion, and uh, could you address the next steps? Then I I know that the appeal is planned, and meanwhile there's pending questions coming from uh, some of our representatives in Washington. So what uh, what is the plan for appeal and, and next steps? So I know that Don Zagaris planning to appeal. Uh, there is a sentencing date set because in July he was found guilty of the six counts of criminal contempt of court. Yes, by an individual so, judge. <laughs> but, yes. Yeah. Um, so it, it's really a matter of, of where, uh, where this appeals process goes and in terms of his particular case. Um, but I think in terms of this practice of um, using private prosecutors, it's really going to come from the progressives in Congress, mm-hmm. uh, not forgetting about it and uh, demanding the kind of reforms that um, this case has demonstrated are vitally necessary. Well, in the appeals process, I assume it goes to another judge and I, with this kind of focus on it, uh, in, in Congress, even uh, to someone who is truly independent, but is that likely to happen, or is there a possible that another I, federal judge can hear it who is also, you know, has ties to Chevron? Yeah, I can't say that I knew that for sure, mm-hmm. um, and I am also not sure exactly what this timeline is going to be. You know, his case had uh, his. His trial, and I use that word lightly, was uh, in May, but it was delayed by a series of problems, including the COVID-19 pandemic. And so I suspect that um, with the case levels we're seeing now, that that will continue to draw out this process even longer. Uh, and let me re-emphasize something from from earlier uh, to clarify for listeners, though. So if he's found guilty... Uh, I'm sorry, he, he, he has for the time being. And uh, so he could be sentenced, and the maximum sentence is is a, you know three or four times less than the time he's been under house arrest. <laughs> yeah, I believe it's six months behind bars and or a fine of up to $5,000. And he's now been under house arrest uh, as of last week over two years. Yeah. And again, this uh, contempt of court uh, had to do with him not turning over his computer and phone and things that would have violated attorney-client uh, privacy issues. So yeah, it's the, the same thing, thing that Chevron would have said if they were asked to do that. Yeah. And, it's just, and any right. any attorney, I mean, this is this is normal. You know, the, the the judge is asking for something which he knows very well is against the normal you know uh, 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 legal process and such and. And it's it's not legally doable. He'd be a fool to to uh, the uh, attorney Stephen Donziger would be a fool to comply. I'd like to just uh, mention too for our listeners that the uh, the Democrats in the House who are pursuing this uh, with uh, 
Attorney General Merrick Garland about the egregious misuse of the justice system and hiring biased, let alone private prosecutors, but biased ones. Um, those were Representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Cory Bush, Jamal Bowman, Jim McGovern, Jamie Raskin, and T Rashida Tlaib, names that are familiar to us mm -hmm. when there are problems. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's who we can count on. Okay, well, we're really lucky to have you with us, Jessica, because you're so ecumenical in everything that you cover that this just slides right into our next problem here, going from um, Chevron in Ecuador to the IPCC report, Code Red for Humanity, that just came out, and you covered that as well. Um, what exactly is the IPCC? Yeah, so the IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and it's the United Nations body that assesses the science related to climate change. They don't conduct their own research. They review the existing climate science and put out uh, various reports over assessment cycles. So we are in the sixth assessment cycle since 1990. And um, the report that they just put out is a review of the latest physical science. And it's especially important because it comes just ahead of a major U.N. climate summit scheduled for the fall. Right. That's going to be at the end of October. And so, they, like, as you mentioned, they do these various reports. And uh, this is the last report before the October 31st COP26 UN Climate Summit. And so it's the one that, that everybody is focusing on right now. And what can you tell us about the reaction to this report? Yeah, so Common Dreams actually did multiple articles about the reaction to the report and what the report said itself. Um, but my reporting specifically focused on the policy reaction and messages from activists and experts around the world saying, yes, this is scary, but here we already know what the solutions are to prevent the kind of catastrophic climate change that all of the scientists have been warning about for decades will happen if we don't change course. So you're saying that this report is um, alarming, but it's not anything that we didn't already know, and we know what we're supposed to do. We're just not doing it? Yeah, that, and that's exactly the message that we just kept stumbling upon, which is how my piece came together is you know, we know that we need to decrease greenhouse gas emissions, not only in the energy sector, but also in transportation and in agriculture. We need systemic changes to the way we build um, and especially in the developed world, uh, we not only need to implement these changes, but fund the changes and the shifts to renewable systems in the global south, which has been disproportionately affected by the climate crisis while disproportionately not contributing to it. 
So, so one of the things I gathered is they're using the word baked in. So the, the things, the scary things that we're seeing right now, the fire and flood cycles, those are quote unquote baked in and we're just going to have to, uh, respond to these realities. But, there's things that we must do right now, or it's going to be worse than things we're complaining about right now. Exactly. So the report says that humans have heated the planet by about 1.1 degrees Celsius since the 19th century. And it warns that even if governments dramatically reduced planet heating emissions today, the average global temperature could hit the Paris Agreement limit of 1.5 degrees Celsius within the next couple decades. And that that 1.5 and even the 2.0 degrees Celsius target could be exceeded this century without immediate and large-scale reductions of emissions. One of the things that you're emphasizing, as are some other uh, outlets, that um, this does not mean to just sit down and wring your hands. It's not, this report is not intended to plunge people into despair. It's intended to plunge people into action. Uh, why should we not despair from this report? Yeah, I think Mary Robinson, the former Irish president who's now chair of the elders, put it really well. Um, she said to those who seek to argue that it's too hard or too late or not or so not worth trying, the report is a reminder that every fraction of the degree of warming really does matter. And I think for anyone who is questioning that, you can look no further than the fires out west in the U.S. or in Turkey or Greece or Siberia or the devastating hurricanes in the Atlantic that we've seen in recent years. Uh, we're already living the climate emergency. It's not some distant future it's now and it's a matter of making our future less worse and implementing the systemic reforms that we already know about in order to do that so that's a key phrase you're using there every fraction of every degree matters mm -hmm. that's why we need to get busy <laughs> so you were talking about some of the the known solutions, uh, what do you have to say about the, what is, what is the package of known solutions? Well, I mean, we can start, I, I think in Sonoma County, they passed a, a resolution from the city council, no more new gas stations. <laughs> is that enough? <laughs> Not nearly, but it's a start. And I think, you know, that is also an important part of the message is every single person, business, government does have a role to play. And that's not to say that um, there aren't industries, particularly the fossil fuel industry, that aren't not just proportionately responsible for the situation we're in now, but that, you know, we need changes on every level. So we need climate action that passes at the city council. We also need national action. Right now we have uh, well, both the House and Senate are in recess, but um, are in the process of working on two infrastructure packages. And climate is a really big focus of those conversations. Um, and there, there's some frustration with what has been stripped out so far uh, or could be. But 
we need bold action from Congress and from the Biden administration, especially given that the U.S. historically is the greatest contributor to global warming. So they have this in the works, and it might squeak through, and it might not, so everybody needs to get to work on that infrastructure package, I guess. Yeah, okay. Um, I guess Biden has done better than his Democratic predecessors in squishing things through, but it's really alarmingly squishy right now, whether it's going to uh, come to fruition or not. Um, well, been a- and there's there's opposition, and, and that'll be funded eventually uh, when you get to the beginning of that funding from mostly fossil fuel companies. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, uh, You did an article last month on ExxonMobil's cover-up of the climate crisis since we're talking about petroleum companies. So what, did, what did you find out about covering up the climate crisis that's been going on for a long time here? Well, um, you know, we've known for many years now that Exxon concealed its internal science about how its products contribute to global warming. Um, and from that, in, re- in the past couple of years, we've seen an increasing number of um, climate liability lawsuits that aim to hold the company accountable for it. Um, meanwhile... Exxon is still, from recent reporting, uh, engaging in efforts to influence climate legislation at the national level in the U.S. Um, so the recent report from Greenpeace UK's investigative arm unearthed revealed that uh, they basically secretly recorded one former and one current Exxon mobile lobbyist. And one of the conversation topics was their efforts and interactions with lawmakers on Capitol Hill, including um, and especially from their Joe Manchin of, uh, of West Virginia, who is uh, a centrist and known for impeding a lot of the progressive agenda on climate and a host of other issues. Yes, you wrote that one of them uh, uh, brags that he talks to Manchin's office every day. That's yeah, it's crazy. And, it's, you know, it's, it's on video, so uh, Exxon's CEO has tried to be like, oh, this isn't actually reflective of, of how we interact with <laughs> U.S. lawmakers, but it's not really believable. Yeah, and then... Um, uh, this is an interesting article that you wrote. Thank you so much. He says he also admits working with shadow groups against climate change literacy, but but that's not illegal. That's actually good. That's just protecting our investment. That's nothing. <laughs> and now look where we are. <laughs> okay. Right, and I think that's why it's so important to continue to pressure. Um, in terms of the, the climate movement and the public in general, you know, continue to pressure lawmakers because they are also getting lobbied by these fossil fuel industry lobbyists. And if, um, you know, they, they want to continue to exist, they don't want their business to go bankrupt. And even though we're seeing that happen in some cases, uh, they're 
they're trying to protect their business model that has gotten us into the situation in the first place. So mm-hmm. that's sacred, even more sacred than the planet, I guess. <laughs> it's like a corporate addiction. It, anything to protect profits, even if you know that they're going to uh, get decimated later by the science, which says you know climate change will take them out anyway. But one of my, mm-hmm. you know, my little two cents worth of prediction here is, uh, is uh, the, the the companies, the fossil fuel companies, will will start to get it when their refineries start to get wiped out by hurricanes in the Gulf Coast yeah. and, and who knows about Southern California in the, in the, you know, in the coming decades. And, um, and their insurance carriers won't let them rebuild it. They said, no, it's, it's, it's squandering money, so they won't, you know, and then they'll start to get it. And then the price of energy will, will go up, but then there'll be more motivation to go to renewables, which is what the solution is anyway, so we should start doing it as soon as possible, you know, now. Yeah, we don't have time for all that, I don't think. But Yeah, so meanwhile, we are being bombarded with these really interesting things. I, I had heard about clean coal, but I hadn't heard about green pipelines before. What, what are green pipelines? Yeah, so it, this is, uh, it's a crazy thing to try and wrap your mind around. Um, and one of the examples is the uh, Keystone XL pipeline, which isn't happening now, but um, was presented by its Canadian company as um, a, a green pipeline. And it's basically powering all of the pipeline's operations with renewable energy. But then the pipeline is still transporting oil or gas. Uh-huh, okay. <laughs> it seems like there's a lot of these little phony solutions. Uh, one thing that I've always had trouble with is carbon offsets, because sometimes the people that sell the carbon offsets are they're, they're people that weren't going to be making any pollution anyway. So it's hard to see where we're really getting very far with that. Do you have a handle on on that kind of that carbon trading? Yeah, I think that in general, you know, whether it's the the, pre- the greenwashing of, of pipelines or the the market systems, a lot of the the progressive groups and experts that we turn to um, in our reporting, it just basically say these are these are easy talking points, and this is echoed in that Exxon report. I um, mean, you know, these are easy talking points for the fossil fuel industry to say, hey, like, look, we support uh, climate action. Like, maybe we didn't understand things before, but now we believe in climate change. And here, like, let's, let's let the market fix it. And uh, we just, we don't have time for that. And, you know, there's also just a lack of trust <laughs> in, <laughs> in these companies that have destroyed the planet to uh, suddenly fix it. What do you think about the idea of a civilian climate core? Yeah, so I think it's a fascinating uh, proposal and in, in very much in line with a lot of the messaging we've seen over the past couple of years from Sanders and AOC and other progressives in Congress about uh, seizing on what was good about New Deal policies and um, bringing them to the forefront. So uh, Markey and Ocasio-Cortez actually proposed CCC legislation the same day they reintroduced the Green New Deal resolution. And since then, a lot of powerful people in Washington, including Chuck Schumer, the majority leader in the Senate, uh, 
have endorsed the CCC. So it looks like we're potentially going to see that in the reconciliation bill, which is the, the infrastructure package that Democrats are trying to advance without any Republican support. If and we- that would... Uh, that would lead to projects across the country that uh, restore our natural systems and also work to um, mitigate and adapt to uh, the impacts of climate change. Mm-hmm. Let me slip in one more time that uh, the number of getting on the conversation, if you'd like to ask a question, is 895-2448. Again, 707-895-2448. If you have any comments you want to add to this. Uh, So we've been talking about the IPCC report, Code Red report, um, but you've been doing a lot of different things, and it would be really nice to sort of slide this in here because you wrote something about, if people aren't scared enough already, about the collapse (laughs) of the Atlantic Ocean current. And that's just such an interesting thing that's going on. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's it's legitimately like straight out of a Hollywood movie because uh, for anyone who remembers the day after tomorrow from 2004, uh, it was, you know, based on uh, this type of event. Um, So a study came out recently showing that this key um, ocean current system called the AMOC could it's been weakening for thousands of years, and researchers are concerned that it could eventually collapse. Um, and this system includes the Gulf Stream, which is the powerful current that carries warm water from the Gulf of Mexico into the Atlantic Ocean. Let's pause and that for so, a moment. Let's pause that for a moment yeah. while we take a call here. Yeah, thank you. Um, hi, you're on the air. Hi, how are you today? I'd like to make a comment if I could. Oh, sure, please do. You know, everyone always talks about this technology or that technology is going to save us. That moving to this new sort of version of energy use is going to save us, and it's not. Because the programming in us is the same. The real answer is to stop wasting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that if people, as a general, as as a concept, thought about not driving for 24 hours once a week. That would make an enormous difference in energy consumption. It's, a, it's an individual kind of idea that could transport itself into many different areas. You know, it, we are a wasteful society, and that's why we're here. We're not here because we make oil. We're here because we waste it. And we waste a lot of things, it's, it's evident. But in this one area, a tremendous difference could be made if people just thought about not driving one oh, day a week. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I've always noticed that, that the one problem seen in all of these things that we're going to do to change things, nobody ever talks about giving up anything. We have another call. Hi, you're on the air. You're on the air. But you have to turn off your phone. Yeah, turn off your radio. Okay, I'm going to drop this call because I'm not. You're not getting through. I think. Yeah, turn off your radio. Uh, okay. Uh, callers, you please. You have to turn your radio off when you are on the air. Otherwise, you're you're not going to. Okay, let's try it again. Hello, you're on the air. Hi. 
I want to follow up that last caller. If people would slow down, it would be incredibly saving on everything, including my nerves on Kamshukai Road. <laughs> we, we have been, because we're poor, we can serve naturally. You know, we shower once, maybe twice a week, depending. People are horrified by that. However, now <laughs> it seems I... like most of Mendocino is going, yep, I mean, that's reality now, folks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On the coast. So conservation is not talked about, just as immune system issues are not talked about. Mm -hmm. Eat better, slow down, drive slower. Thank uh, you. Okay, thank you. Okay, back to our guest, Jessica Cor Corbett. Do you have uh, some reactions to those two similar calls? Yeah, I think that it's not one or the other. It's both. We need systemic change, but that systemic change isn't going to happen unless on a societal level we reconsider the choices that we're making in our day-to-day -day lives. So that's diet, that's transportation, and that's who we vote into office in order to enact these policies that we need on a national and international scale. And so, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think that we we need to be more mindful about how we consume and what we consume, both food-wise and, and elsewhere. But to, uh, to the last caller's point, you know, it's also sometimes ex incredibly expensive uh, to make smart choices. You, you know, you can't just go out and necessarily buy an electric vehicle. Maybe you've had the same car for the last 15 years and it's paid off and, you know, it's, it's going to continue to pollute the planet, but you certainly don't have it in your paycheck to, to invest in an electric vehicle um, or maybe your community <laughs> doesn't have public transportation. Okay, we have another call. So, We're going to squeeze in one more call. Hi, you're on hey. the air. Hi, thanks. Yeah, I have read that a major, the major contributor to greenhouse gases is the military, and I'd like to hear some comments about that. Oh, yeah, okay, thank you. The military. How are we going to get them to give up gas and oil? Yeah, so I think that this is definitely a topic that is not very popular among many people in Washington, other than perhaps some of the more progressive members of Congress, but... The um, I'm trying to pull up the report we did a couple of years ago um, because the Pentagon does massively contribute mm -hmm. to um, the climate crisis and specifically has post 9-11 um, between the planes and the boats and all of the bases around the world. Um, it, it When we talk about, you know, cutting back on the pollution that we put out there is also, you know, reconsidering the militarization mindset of the U.S. government. And so if we were to shut down some of these bases, maybe not fly these crazy planes all over the world, uh, that would dramatically cut back. Okay, we only have about three minutes left, a scant three minutes. Jessica Corbett, would you like to say a little bit about common dreams or add anything that, that we didn't get to that you need to squish in there? Uh, yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, my my takeaway from this climate reporting has just been the importance of, of paying attention to it and to, n to not getting deflated, but actually figuring out how you can contribute not only um, on the individual level, but 
um, to really push for the kinds of systemic change that scientists say are necessary to ensure a habitable planet for future generations. And, um, you know, that's the kind of mindset that Common Dreams brings to all of our pieces. Uh, we were founded over 20 years ago, uh, but I've been with the news team since mid-2017. We cover not only climate and environmental issues, but also rights and justice, global politics, economics, war and peace, uh, healthcare, and technology. And in addition to our news team, we also uh, run unique commentary pieces and we republish um, opinion pieces as well okay. that are in line with our progressive mission. Okay, thank you so much, Jessica Corbett. So, Steve, do you want to see us out here? Well, I want to mention a few other things. We do have two minutes to go. We stop at the top of the hour. And so... Um, no, we have one minute to go. At one minute before? Yes, okay. yes, sir. Uh, in that case, uh, I want to mention that uh, the commondreams.org is the website. And then uh, you can find under the uh, slash author slash Jessica Corbett is where your work is there. So Jessica with two S's and dash Corbett, C-O-R-B-E-T-T. And then you also have your own site, which is just jessicacorbett.com. And so thanks for being our guest. Super. I'm glad we had some calls in, interested in the topic. And thank you for those callers. And thanks for being our guest today. Stay tuned for democracy. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Jessica. Mm, Bye-bye. And this has been Corporations and Democracy, broadcast on second Thursdays, uh, second Thursdays of the month from 3 to 4 here on KZYX. And I will return next month. That's Thursday, September 9th. And for further information about these topics, you can go to thealliancefordemocracy.org. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening. Not your property, it's the commons, our right of birth, and you who wouldn't close the land.